You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Thanks so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Okay, well, welcome this morning. My name is Spencer, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14. This is part six of seven of a series called Jesus in the Present Tense, and we've been spending where we're spending seven weeks looking at seven things that Jesus says about himself. These are seven uh, promises. These are not just abstract theological principles. These are promises that Jesus makes about who he is, what he does, and how it is that he can change your life today, which is why we're calling this Jesus in the present tense. This is about how Jesus can change your life today. So we're looking through a, a promise a week as we go through here. Um, each one of these promises is found in the, in the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, they all follow a similar pattern where Jesus will say, I am, and then fill in the blank with whatever he is. I am uh, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. And I just did all of them from memory right there in the row. So I, I, you should be impressed by that, by the way, just, just so you know. No. Um, today's going to be our last one. This one's going to be a bit more uh, heavy than the others. It's going to be a bit more controversial than the others because this one uh, stirs up some questions that can be uncomfortable, that we're going to wrestle with some uncomfortable questions this morning. It could be that at the end of this, you walk away with more questions, which I'm perfectly fine with. I think sometimes in church, you should walk away thinking about things with more questions because sometimes the Spirit meets us in those, in those places of having more questions. So John chapter 14, we're going to start reading verse 1. We're going to read through verse 6. Um, we're going to see this uh, sixth promise that Jesus makes here. So here we go, John 14. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He says this because he's about to be crucified. He's talking to his disciples right before the crucifixion. So do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let me rephrase that. As you believe in God, so also believe in me. Because I am God. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm not just a moral teacher. I'm not just a a religious figure. I am actually God. So therefore, as you believe in God, you can also believe in me. He goes on, verse 2. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way, literally the Greek word there is road. You know the road or the path, the highway. You you know the road, you know the way uh, to the place where I'm going. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Now what Jesus is doing here is he is uh, setting up this incredible metaphor that to our modern ears is, is lost to what Jesus is talking about. But this uh, many rooms in the Father's house, some translations might say mansions, uh, it's, a, it's a common uh, first century practice that when a man and a woman would be married, uh, the father of the groom would build on a room to the house. The house becomes more of a compound where you'd have maybe two or three generations living together um, under the same roof. And so some of you may just set a silent prayers like, thank God that is not the situation today. <laughs> that you got to go buy a starter home and they had to go live in with the in-laws and this is what happened. And so you'd have this situation where you'd have uh, these, these families living together. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, my father is gonna build on a room for you because you're part of the family. And, and you know the way to get there. You know, you know the road to take is what he's saying. You know the road to take. You know which direction to get there. Um, Thomas, the next verse, doesn't quite get what Jesus is getting at. He doesn't know the road. So he says um, to him, verse five, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. I don't know what you're talking about. So how can we know the way? How can we know the road? How, how do, give me directions to get to the house with all of the rooms because I want to live there too, is what he's saying. And then Jesus answered him, John 14, verse six, very, very famous verse. Jesus answered him and said, I am, I am the way. 
I am the road. I, I am the path. I am the highway. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so there we have it today. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Really incredible metaphor that Jesus gives us about uh, living in this family that he's brought to us, that he's brought us into, and that um, he's given us the road to get to his Father's house to, that we might be part of the family. Now, um, this promise we have here, though, also raises questions. Jesus is the way, he's the road. Well, it raises some questions about what that, what that means. And at least to my mind, it raises two specific questions that I wanna wrestle with with you this morning. And maybe there's other questions that this raises, but there's two in my mind. And those two questions are this. Well, if Jesus is the way, well, how is Jesus the way? Like, what is it that he has done that makes Jesus the way, that makes this promise true? What is it that he's done that makes him the road to get to the Father? And two, with that, that, that question comes another question, which, which really needs to be asked is, does that mean that Jesus is the only way? And so how is Jesus the way? And then does that mean also that Jesus is the only way? So we're going to talk through those two questions. Um, this is, again, a little bit, little bit heavier maybe than, than we might have had in the past few weeks. But we want to walk through some of these questions and think through this. And so we're going to start with the first one because these two questions are really uh, go together quite, quite well. So these two questions, we're going, to, we're going to walk through these first two questions. And uh, to start answering this first question of how is Jesus um, the way, let's talk about some stained glass. So we're doing this series for two reasons. One, I love the I am statements that you find in John. I think these are incredibly, um, profoundly compelling statements about who Jesus is and what he's done. That's one reason why we're doing this series. Uh, the other reason, a bit more practical, is that someone in our church donated these stained glass windows that we've had um, installed in the sanctuary. And so um, these stained glass windows reflect the, the I am statements. Each one of them reflects a different statement. You'll notice as well that they're the color of the rainbow. So there's the promise of God that's reinforced through those stained glass. And um, a few of the stained glass windows are very obvious. We haven't talked about all of them because some of them are, are, are more obvious than the other ones. But this um, one in particular, John 14, 6, um, is, is I, to me, it's my favorite one, but it's also maybe one of the more confusing ones. So I wanna talk about this one. And um, so here's the John 14, 6. We're showed up here. It's also gonna be this for folks watching online or in our outreach center. It's kind of awkward to talk about windows that you're not in the room to actually see, but stay with me here. So um, here's the window on our screens. You can also, if you're here in the sanctuary, not online, you can just like look, turn your head and you can see it. It's right there. It's the red one. This is uh, my favorite window by far. Not like a little bit. I love this window. It's my favorite window by far. It's a very simple window. And what you'll notice on this window is essentially you'll, you'll notice a road. There, there's a road going down the window. It's kind of winding around and it's a, it's a road that's going down. But you'll notice is what I love about this window. I just love how it's all red and the single color uh, because it's not just that we're on any road. It's that we're on a, a blood-stained road. Right? Jesus is the way, um, not because he's just taught us good things, but because he spilled his blood for us. He's done something for us that changes the nature of who we are, that changes the nature of our relationship with God and puts us on a whole other road altogether. Now, the kind of the biblical word, there's several biblical words you could use for this, but one of the biblical, key biblical words you would use to describe what Jesus has done is the word um, redeem. What Jesus has done is he's redeemed us. 
This is what he's done with his blood by shedding his blood for us as he's redeemed us. It's a very biblical word. Um, Old Testament has a, this tradition of, of, of redeemers in the Old Testament. There's this, this word in the Old Testament, kind of two words stuck together, hyphen, so I'm counting as one word, but it's two words, um, called a kinsman redeemer. Maybe you've heard that before, maybe you haven't. But the idea in the Old Testament was that if you find yourself in trouble, so much trouble that you need to sell your land or maybe even yourself, uh, it was the obligation or the, at least the opportunity of your nearest relative, your kin, to redeem you out of your trouble, meaning that your kin would buy, uh, pay for whatever trouble you're in, pay for your rescue out of whatever trouble you might be in. By the way, this is the whole plot line to the Old Testament book of Ruth, is that her kinsman redeemer redeems her. He financially uh, changes her situation, financially uh, rescues her out of the situation. This is what redemption is. There's a, a rescue that happens because somebody pays the price for you. The New Testament, of course, picks up the same idea. The New Testament talks about Jesus like this. Um, a few examples of how the New Testament talks about Jesus with this idea of paying um, the price. First uh, Peter chapter 1 says, you know, talks about the work of Jesus. And listen to how First Peter calls this. Uh, it says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as um, silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life. God didn't buy your redemption with, you know, money. But rather, he, Peter says, with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. Another example of this is Titus chapter two. Um, Titus says that Jesus gave himself, listen to this language, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. Um, another example, Galatians three says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He, he paid the price by becoming that for us is what Paul said in Galatians. Ephesians one, another one says, in him we have redemption. And very specifically, we have redemption through his blood that Jesus has paid the price for us through his blood. This is the idea of redemption, that Jesus paid for our rescue by sacrificing his own life. Uh, theologians, very fancy word, you can use this at lunch if you want to, um, call this idea substitutionary atonement, that Jesus substituted his life for your life. It was a one for one, you, his life for your life, his blood for your blood, that you can have freedom because this is what he's done for you. This is the, the reason why um, Jesus is the way, how he is the way, how he is the road is because he has paid the price um, for your redemption. Now, with that there, let's just hold on to that idea and let's go back to those two questions. Those two questions. First one was, how is Jesus the way? And we just talked through that and we're going to come back to that in just a little bit, but that's the first thing. How is Jesus the way? Well, he redeemed us by paying the price with his blood. The second question then that comes up that becomes more controversial and far more difficult to answer um, is this question, well, does that mean then that Jesus is the only way? Does that mean that Jesus is the only way? Because if you believe that Jesus paid the price for your salvation, your redemption with his blood, well, what do you do with those people who don't believe that and who don't affirm that? Or people who maybe even have another way of understanding the way to God. Specifically, what do you do? Let's get really big question here. What do you do with people of different religions? How do you understand this? If you believe that Jesus paid the price with his blood, what do you do with people who um, ascribe to a different religion and they have also a way that they're going to say that they get to God as well? Like, how do we, how do we get around that? Now, I just asked a very big question and I have 12 minutes left in the sermon. So I want to, I want to talk about this for just a few moments here. 
And again, I'm gonna say some things that um, probably will cause some more questions, and I think that's a great thing for you to continue to think and talk and pray through some of the things I wanna share with you um, as we think through this and what this means. And I wanna talk about this in the biggest picture possible um, so that we can get some, like, some principles, not necessarily individual specific, like what do you do with certain religions, but just big picture kind of thing. And we're gonna say in the big picture and not the practical. So it's not gonna be very practical what I wanna share with you. The practical side of what do you do with other religions is really simple. You treat everybody, no matter who it is or what they believe, with dignity, respect, and love, and care, and you pray for them and serve the poor, serve them, and I mean, all kinds of, like you do anybody. So it's not practical. We're going to talk about the big picture here. And, um, and the big picture here, we could, we could look at this in several ways, but I want to look at an assumption that uh, a lot of people hold about different religions. And this is kind of a thing behind the thing. This is an assumption that doesn't have to do with any one specific world religion. It's an assumption that a lot of people have about world religions in general. And by the way, when I use the word world religions, I'm really talking about five. There's five major world religions, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Islam. Judaism and Christianity. There's like the five major world religions. And what you could do is you could look at each one of those and like do a study of those. It's called comparative religion. And there's all kinds of resources online if you wanted to go watch a famous preacher talk about those things. I'm not going to do it today because I got like nine minutes at this point. So instead, I want to talk about the thing behind the thing. And there's an assumption. I bet you've heard this assumption before. But there's an assumption when it comes to world religions that is, I'm going to say this very simply, but is basically, well, every religion's really the same and they just talk about things differently, right? That's the kind of the, the major assumption that people in our culture have is that all the world religions are basically the same. Um, they just have different ways of saying it. And so the, the idea that they're all the same is really that all the world religions are basically teaching us how to be good people in order to go to the afterlife, whatever that religion talks about the afterlife. And that's, that's kind of the point of all the world religions. And so you'll have people who point out the similarities that exist between the different world religions, for instance, all the world religions have a golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they're like, oh, see, they, they all teach kind of the same thing. And so therefore it's all about going to the afterlife. And, and with this idea, this assumption, there's a really classic metaphor. I don't know if you've heard this before. It's a very old classic metaphor. I certainly didn't come up with it. I just heard it a lot. And basically it, it imagines that, um, imagine that God is um, an elephant. This is the metaphor. Imagine that God is an elephant and you have, um, which is, you know, this massive big thing. How would you possibly describe an elephant to someone? And then you blindfold five people and you have five people who don't know what an elephant is um, try to describe the elephant by what it is that they're touching. So you've got a blindfolded person holding a trunk. Well, how are they gonna describe the trunk? What is an elephant like if all you know is the trunk or all you know is the leg or all you know is the ear or the tusk or, you know, whatever. And you have this massive thing that, that you have a very limited perspective on. And so therefore, you, this is how you describe this. And so people will say, this is really what's going on with world religions is it's just, you know, you have a limited spectrum of thought of this really massive thing. And so this is why, you know, we're all saying different things, but we're describing the same thing. And so that's a, a very classic metaphor of that. And it, it makes sense. I mean, I, I get the metaphor. I, I understand it. It makes sense. It's attractive. And that is, it makes sense. And as you think about it, because there's very similar things that you see throughout the different world religions. For instance, um, Islam has the, uh, the five pillars of Islam, which are the five things that Muslims are supposed to do in their life in order to, to enjoy paradise. Or uh, Buddhism has the nine virtues of the Buddha, which is what you need to achieve in order to you know, get nirvana. Or, or Hinduism has karma, which is the law of good or bad that gets at work in your life in order to rescue you from the cycles of... Um, 
uh, reincarnation. Judaism has the law. Like all these things make sense. This elephant idea makes sense. And when you think about it like that, until you get to the Christian message, because the Christian message has an entirely different message than those other religions. The Christian message has nowhere in it is it about ever becoming a good person. Like the Christian message has no message in it about morality as the key to getting to God or the key to achieving the afterlife. The Christian message is entirely different. What is the Christian message? The Christian message is that the son of God who was born into this world paid the price with his own life for me and all that's required of me is just to believe, just to accept it and receive it, just to accept that that is true and that that is enough for me. The, the Christian message is not different in degree from other world religions. Like it's different in kind. It's a categorically different message than these other world religions because it's not about becoming a good person. That's not the goal of it. That's not how we achieve salvation or how we live into relationship with God is through morality. And, and sometimes that's the Christian message becomes about morality, but really that's not the Christian message. And so I, I've come to the conclusion that anytime I hear someone um, start talking about the Christian message in terms of morality, a lot of times they use the phrase good Christian and then they fill in the blank with whatever good Christians do. And I've come to the realization that whenever I hear the phrase good Christian, I immediately know that that person has no idea what the Christian message is actually about because it's not about becoming a good Christian. It's not about that at all. It's about what has Jesus already done for me and all I have to do is just simply receive it. This is the Christian message. You see, Jesus said, um, I am the way, the truth, and life. Jesus didn't say, let me show you the way to the Father. Jesus didn't say, here's five things that you need to do in order to get to the Father. Jesus didn't say, here are three virtues or five principles. He just simply said, he said, I am the way, the truth, and life. I, it, it is me. The great theologian Karl Barth, Swiss theologian, he said it like this. He said, um, Jesus does not give recipes. I love this. Jesus does not give recipes that show the way to God as other teachers of religion do. He is himself the way. Like he is himself the road. He is himself the path, the, the way that we are to get to God. And he is the way because he is the one who paid the price with his blood. And as far as I know, he's the only one who's paid the price with his blood. And because he's paid the price for his blood, he has become the way. And so Jesus either paid the price for our salvation with his blood, or he didn't. Like it's one of two options. It's a pretty binary choice. Either it was enough what he did on the cross, or it wasn't. There's really not a third option that's, that's available for us. And this, this way of thinking about what Jesus has done and how powerful it is, I'm, I'm, this is the gospel message that he has done this for us. Um, this way of thinking about what he has done and what he's, this gospel message is, is so powerful. Friends, like, the simple truth is that he's the way will change your life. It is a life-changing realization when you begin to believe and to trust that he is actually the way and the truth and the life. Let me tell you that from my story. Um, I've shared with you a bit of my story. I shared with you before how I grew up in church. I, I am a product of church. First United Methodist Church of Joplin was my home church. I grew up in that church. I was baptized in that church as a, as a baby. I did vacation Bible school and Sunday school and youth groups and mission trips and church camps, like you name it. I did it when it came to the church. Like I was, I was a church kid and I, I fully got it. I went to church almost every Sunday with my family and it was like old school church. We didn't have children's Sunday school. I had to sit in that sermon and listen to it 
and I had to like talk about it later. And this was sweet. And our, and our pews were wood. It was not comfortable, not at all. And then old school church. And that was, that's what I grew up in. And, and I heard this message over and over and over again about how, you know, Jesus loves me and he's given himself for me and I should believe in him. And I, I've heard this message over and over again growing up. And, and between you and me, like it, it made no sense to me. It, it might as well have been a, a conversation about the tooth fairy. I mean, it just made no sense to me what we were trying to describe. The tipping point for me was when someone explained to me why Jesus had to die. The tipping point for me was when someone explained to me this idea of redemption, that it was through his blood that um, the price for my salvation was paid through him. And so someone explained that to me, and I remember exactly where I was. I remember who I was with. I remember just very, very clear because it was one of those moments. I don't know if you've had these moments in life, but it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, that's why Jesus had to die. Like I've been going to church my whole life and I didn't know the answer to that question that he had to pay the price with his blood. Like, oh, this makes sense now. I, I get it. And, and, I, and I, for some reason, I, you know, I guess we just assume that church people understand this kind of thing, why Jesus had to die and why that's important. But the reality is maybe there's a lot of us who don't know this. And so I, I, it caught my attention. And then a few months later, after hearing that message, again, I remember exactly where I was. Um, I had this realization. It wasn't like an emotional experience. I didn't come forward in an altar call or anything like that. It was just, I had this realization that if I died right then, like I got hit by the bus kind of thing. And if I died, I just, I just knew I'm gonna spend eternity with Jesus. Like I, I, I can't explain any more than that. I just knew that I knew that I knew that what Jesus had done was simply enough and that he wasn't waiting for me to prove myself any more or less than I already had. It was just a simply, I just had to receive what he'd done. I just had this, this moment of realization and, and I had like no doubt about where I stood with him at that moment. And to be honest with you, I've had no doubts since then. I've had other doubts, but other things, but, but that is just was such a profoundly clear experience for me that I just knew that I knew that I knew that what Jesus had done was, was enough. Now I've shared that story with people I've shared the story with a lot of people. I mean, I preach for a living, so I've shared the story with a lot of people. Um, but I've shared that story personally with people before, and I've had people tell me, not like one or two, but maybe four or five, have told me, well, Spencer, that's great for you, but that story is arrogant. And the first time I heard that was my friend Mark. He told me that. He said, my friend Mark went to church every Sunday, and he told me that that's, a, that's an arrogant story. And I, I was like, kind of, well, first of all, it's my story. You can't call my story arrogant. That's kind of arrogant for you to say that. That's why I got defensive at first, but he told me that it was, an, it was an arrogant story. And then he said, because how can you ever know if you actually did enough? And it gave me pause and I realized to myself, oh, right. Mark, you're absolutely right. That is an arrogant story if the Christian message is just like every other world religion. However, if Jesus actually paid the price for what I've done and what you've done and that we've all done and we can have new life only through him, it's not an arrogant story because it's not about me. It's about what he's done. And what he has done is enough. It's either enough or it's not enough. There's no third option. And if what he's done is enough, then I can trust him with my eternal life. I can trust him with my life right now. I can trust him with every detail of my life because he's already paid the price. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus is the way because he is the one 
who's paid the price with his own life. And as far as I know, he's the only one who has paid the price with his own life. And that's why he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Because he is the source for the payment, for the redemption that we need in our life, for everyone needs in our life. And so this morning, I, I, I want to offer an invitation this morning to you because I, I imagine there's people who are like me, that you can go to church, you can go through your religious experience, and you can hear the message of what Jesus has done, and God loves you, and those sorts of things, but it doesn't really make sense to you, and you don't really know where you personally stand with the Lord, and, and I just think it'd be, be, it'd be so hard, so wrong this morning if people walked away not knowing, not feeling, they have this confidence, this assurance that Jesus himself is actually the way and that he's given you a promise that is reliable and true. And so if there's anyone here this morning, I'm not gonna make you like come forward or embarrass you by having you raise your hand or anything like that because I think Jesus meets us in all kinds of ways. But if you're here this morning and you've got questions about where do I stand with him, I just want you to hear the good news that what he has done is enough. He's not looking for you to prove anything to him whatsoever. And if he's, what he's done is enough, then you can take that to the bank. You can, you can rely on that. You can have the assurance that he has for you everything you need. You see, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I was for them back in Bible times. Not I will be for you when you get your life together. But right now, today, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I'm gonna pray for us. And uh, it may be during this prayer, there's, uh, there's some folks who, who it's, a, it's time for you to just uh, cross that line of faith and for your own self to, to put your faith, your trust, your belief in what Jesus has done, the promise that he has paid the price for you in every way imaginable. So let's pray. Father, today, I just thank you for this promise that you are the way, the truth, and the life and that we don't have to prove ourselves you're not waiting for us to be good enough. You're not waiting for us to be moral enough. You're not waiting for us to become a good Christian who's got all their doubts um, cleared up and who has all their, their sins cleaned up. But rather, Lord, you, just, you want us to come and to find life in you because this is what you offer us. And so while there's questions maybe we have about uh, life and other things, we, we do know that what you have done is simply enough, that you paid the price for our life. And so if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know where they stand, who doesn't know what had happened to them if they were to die and to face you, um, doesn't know where they'd stand if you were to return in glory, uh, we just wanna take a moment. And for anyone here this morning who needs to just simply confess you as their savior and as their Lord, that this would be the day that they look back and say, today was the day I just knew that I knew that what Jesus did was enough. And so Lord, in our own hearts, our own ways, our own minds, we just wanna say a simple prayer Lord, would you forgive me of my sin and would you make me new? And in that simple act of prayer and confession, we know and we can trust in your promise that you are the way and the truth and the life. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co, and if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening.